The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is new UCI Paul Mirage School of Business Dean, Ian Williamson. Now, under normal circumstances, we would probably be talking to Dean Williamson in his office at UCI. But due to COVID and international travel restrictions, he's been unable to leave his current home in Wellington, New Zealand. So instead, all the way from down under via Zoom, welcome, Dean Williamson. How are you today? I am doing very, very well. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome, sir. Good to hear. Or oh, I should say Kiora and uh, Tenokoto Katoa, which would be a more appropriate response given where I am right now. I love it. With the time difference, I understand that you're like 21 hours ahead of Irvine. So thank you for accommodating us in your schedule. And I also want to mention on the front end that you are the first black dean of the UCI Business School. So congratulations and welcome aboard. My pleasure to be joining the institution. Super. You became the dean of the UCI Business School effective January 1st, 2021, but obviously have been unable to be here. Is COVID what's stopping you? Is there anything else? Or yeah, it's all COVID. It's all COVID. The University of California system currently has a non-essential travel restriction. We were planning on arriving in December, and that was, of course, right when things were getting pretty challenging with COVID in the U.S. So, you know, I think it was wise for the travel restriction to be in place. Mm -hmm. So I assume that that'll be revisited sometime over the next several weeks, perhaps over the next month. And then once that restriction is lifted, we'll make our move over. But I must admit, it's been an interesting way to start a new role. (laughs) I bet. But it's still a little bit, things are um, going really well uh, here. It's amazing how the pandemic, you know, the the slings and arrows, the ups and downs, because um, we have been rapidly uh, decreasing our uh, infectiousness. and, and, And they're talking about now opening Disneyland again, which has been closed for, I think, over a year. So that's really great news. How is the pandemic in New Zealand? 
Well, we've been very fortunate in New Zealand. You know, when things began, you know, the irony around a lot of this is I actually was interviewing for this role at UCI. I actually left, I think, the last March 1st, if I'm not mistaken, from the United States to go back to New Zealand after leaving Irvine. Mm. And of course, within two weeks of arriving back, everything went, you know, nuts uh, (laughs) globally. And it, it was, you know, we responded in a way I think was really appropriate for what New Zealand is in that quickly the government realized that we had the benefit of sort of seeing things happening uh, overseas a little bit and sort of taking stock of what was going on. Uh, Mm. The government quickly realized that this was going to be very, very challenging for New Zealand, Mm. given its location, its infrastructure and resources to manage. Mm. And so they took a very strong stance of, you know, basically eradication. And that meant closing the country to travel, very, very strict uh, lockdown period for roughly two months. We did get a huge spike in cases initially, but that was able to subside. And in essence, we've had those major restrictions around travel in and out of the country in place since that period of time. Unfortunately, internal, because they were able to get the numbers down to such low numbers, we've actually been able to get back to a pretty high level of activity. But we still have flare-ups. You know, not even a week and a half ago, Auckland had a series of cases, an outbreak. And in essence, the country uh, had to clock, basically close Auckland. So no one in, no one out, Auckland being about 1.5 million people for five days. Wow. And, you know, so that's been, you know, we we have not started our uh, mass vaccination process here. We just started getting vaccines about two weeks ago. You know, I think it was a wise decision. It's not the case that we would have the hospital infrastructure or medical infrastructure that you would see in countries like the United States. And many of the Pacific Islands had to follow similar suits simply because if there had been an ability for the virus to get traction in those countries, it would have just been devastating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've, we've kind of had to adopt a very different approach than what you've seen in other places around the world. Gotcha. Do you know what the New Zealand population total is approximately? Or do you, do you have a sense of About that? About 5 million people. Yeah, so about five million people. And that was another advantage. You know, really, it's been interesting for me watching how this has all played out. As I think I'm biased. I'm a management professor. My, my area of expertise is under, you know, with a minor in sociology. So this is, this is something that I typically think a lot about, and particularly from a, how leaders manage organizations. And it's really been fascinating to see how in an environment where everyone is dealing with scarce information, the, the, the understanding of this particular phenomenon is changing daily. So how do leaders make sense of it? How do they prioritize? How do they frame? And then the other aspect of this is how do the cultures of certain societies set up or make certain options more or less viable? And so, you know, you can't really understand the responses to the communities have around this without taking into consideration, you know, it was that leader at that time and it was also that culture at that time. And so here we had a leader who prior to this had gained quite a bit of national, international attention because of her response to a terrorist attack we had at a mosque you know, the previous year. And very transparent, very open, someone who really prided herself on high levels of public displays of empathy. And you know, that really resonated well with this particular country because of our population and culture, which you know, the, the indigenous influence, the Maori influence is very strong. And there's a very strong, within that culture, very strong uh, orientation towards people you know, and lineage and land. And so that kind of language and transparency responded well. And it's a very collectivist society. And so you know, her initial campaign slogan around COVID was, you know, we are a team of five million and every person has to play their role. Mm. 
And that logic of team and collective and well-being, you know, just it was consistent with who she was. So you had the right leader, I think, at the right time. But it also was consistent with who this place is. Yeah. And, you know, she's gotten a lot of attention for that. But I don't know if that approach would work in other settings because it's, you know, it's always contextual. You know, there are other cultures that have different orientations. So that's kind of been, you know, a, a really fascinating sort of observation to see, you know, because every environment is making sense of this in different ways. Right, right. I think there's many people here in the United States that wish we had had much more of that approach. Professor, can you tell us a little bit uh, about the geography of New Zealand? You know, I've actually been to Auckland uh, once briefly, um, but can you tell us, like, where is Wellington in terms of where Auckland is and and, uh, just a little bit of that? Yes. So, you know, New Zealand is primarily considered, you know, there are multiple islands, but there's two big ones, the main yeah. ones. And New Zealand is very creative in describing them. One is north and one is south. <laughs> the North Island and the South Island. Wellington is in the North Island. And so if you think about it, Auckland is near the top of the mm-hmm. North Island and Wellington is at the bottom of the North Island. It's about a four hour boat ride between Wellington and the top of the South Island. So, you know, maybe about a nine hour drive to go from Wellington to Auckland if you went through, just driving through the, uh, the countryside. And, you know, it's, it was interesting. We actually had an 8.1 earthquake hit uh, last week. Right. Uh, which was, yeah, which is, you know, massive. That's a gigantic earthquake. And we were very, very fortunate in that. It was a few hundred miles off the coast. It wasn't centered on land. We were rocking and rolling in the middle of the night for certain. Uh, but fortunately, wow. we didn't have any major infrastructure damage of any sort. And we did have a tsunami warning, but that was on the east side of the island. Wellington is at the bottom on the west side. So we fortunately did not have to evacuate, but there was a large portion of the country along the coast, which actually had to evacuate for a day just because of concerns around tsunami. So it's, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting place. And New Zealand is very beautiful. And people talk about it as being very calm. But it's a place that, you know, we get our fair share, perhaps more than our fair share of natural occurrences, uh, which kind of makes it a little more interesting than you would normally think it would be. Is that the biggest earthquake that you've experienced? It is, actually. I've been in some big ones before, but never like that. I, was, I happened to be in China years ago when they had a very massive earthquake that was quite devastating. It was in the sevens. I was fortunately not at the epicenter, but felt that one quite strongly. This was certainly one we were moving around for about a minute. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and after about the first 15 seconds or so, you kind of go, okay. And then a little bit longer, you're like, wait a second, what's going on? But yeah. like I said, we were very fortunate. We didn't have any major damage because of the location of the epicenter. So it woke you up. Were you, were you sleeping? Yeah, it was two o'clock in the morning. And in fact, we had three earthquakes over seven within the period of several hours. So it was, it was, uh, we got a, we got an encore presentation actually. (laughs) Wow. So yeah. So you didn't get a lot of sleep that night. Okay. Wake up. Uh, Yeah, uh, no, it was, we were pretty alert that night. Yeah. Yeah. But no damage to your home or no, no. We, the country as a whole was very, very fortunate. We didn't have any major damage in Wellington or other parts. Uh, like I said, the tsunami warning was in effect for about 12, 15 hours, but we did get some pretty, you know, pretty amazing waves, but nothing of a major tsunami effect. And, you know, it's, um, this is, you know, it's interesting, again, how a country's prepared. So this has got to be one of the countries that's got one of the most, you know, front of mind in terms of 
earthquake response. And so the day before, actually, my, my son was in school and they were having their earthquake preparation drills. So we were all ready to what to do. Although you begin to appreciate in situations like that, that you kind of, not much you can do with, a, with an earthquake of that magnitude. You just kind of right. hold on and hope that you're going to be okay. Right. Can you share with us how long you've been in New Zealand and what you've been doing while you've been there? Yeah, so I uh, have been here now just over three and a half years. I came here to join Victoria University of Wellington. I um, took the role of becoming the Pro Vice Chancellor and the Dean of the Wellington School of Business and Government. So Victoria University of Wellington is one of the older universities in New Zealand. There are eight public institutions in New Zealand, and it is a relatively mid-sized university, I would say, about 25,000 students. Okay. So I was on the senior executive team for the entire university, so on the leadership team for the university, and also I was responsible for the business school operations. And our business school was a little unique in that it was a school of business and government, which are not oftentimes combined. Mm-hmm. And so while I spent quite a bit of my time working with corporate sector and industry, I also spent quite a bit of my time working with the federal government and, mm-hmm. and at all levels, uh, from the mm-hmm. prime minister's office all the way to various ministries. So it was really fascinating to understand how a business school can play an important role, not just in shaping and uh, how organizations run, but providing really timely uh, input and uh, feedback to government officials about shaping government policy and government activity. So it was a great experience and also a chance to work a lot with, because Wellington is the capital, quite a bit of interaction with international dignitaries. So a lot of work with ambassadors from different countries mm-hmm. and, and understanding and, you know, how, how they think of the world. So it was a great experience for me to kind of get a different side of the role of business in society and understand how we can contribute. Yeah, excellent. Is Wellington their capital? It is. It is the oh. capital city. Wow. Wow. That sounds like a, a, an amazing opportunity. Fantastic. Can you briefly describe to us the New Zealand economy? Uh, well, I mean, you know, you have to put it in perspective. It's, it's, it's the country of 5 million. And so you think about Orange County, which is just over 3 million, yeah. uh, but, you know, nowhere near as big. So you kind of get a sense of the scale of the operation. The economy is heavily dominated by exports, primarily primary industry, things like lumber, dairy is we're probably per capita the largest exporter of dairy products on the planet. Oh. Quite a few cows uh, <laughs> in New Zealand. Other food articles, fish, lamb. So we have a huge primary sector export industry. We have a gigantic tourism business. You know, brand New Zealand has certainly been increasing in its relevance globally. And so that has been quite devastating for us in terms of COVID because obviously with the very, very strong restrictions on travel, we only get a few hundred people are actually able to come into the country every day right now. And that's only basically New Zealand citizens who are returning from abroad. So tourism from international tourism has pretty much ceased to exist. And that's been quite devastating. It also has, um, you know, our education system here, particularly at the university level, is a very strong draw. And so we have quite a few international students or had, and that's been another big issue that the countries have to deal with, the, the lack of international students. And then, but, you know, I think the other, we've seen an increase in professional services. And in fact, Wellington, where I was based, is the film capital of uh, New Zealand. And most people would not think of this, but in fact, one of the leading digital special effects companies on the planet is based in Wellington. So Weta, 
Digital is a special effects company, which is owned and operated by Sir Peter Jackson. Mm. Most people would not know of them, but if you've watched pretty much any of the top movies in the last 15 to 20 years, all of them were done by Weta. Yeah. Avatar, King Kong, you know, Avengers, uh, anything with special effects. This is the, the company that everyone goes to. Uh, and there's always interesting stories about famous movie stars being smuggled into Wellington, this little small town in New Zealand, to film scenes and movies in their particular studio. And then they have to smuggle them out because they don't want to spoil the release date. So we, we have celebrity sightings <laughs> in Wellington every now and then. People, you know, it's a small town. You notice things. Yeah, um, yeah. But so this you, is that's another did, growing industry. Gotcha. Did you have an opportunity to meet him while you were there, uh, Peter Jackson? I unfortunately did not have a chance to meet him. Yeah. I actually ended up doing uh, quite a bit of work with them um, and met many of the senior leaders of the organization, but didn't have an opportunity to interact with them. But I had a chance to go to their facilities uh, and you know, do different things and different projects with them. I, I'm quite interested actually in the creative economy and understanding how we can work with, if you like, creative fields as a driver of economic growth for communities. It's a, you know, it's a great way for communities to, you know, I think I look here, you know, you've had this industry which has sparked thousands of jobs, you know, billions of dollars of, of revenue for the country. It's very environmentally sound. You know, if you're going to think about growing an industry, that's a great one from the environment. And it also is a great way for cultures to, if you like, reinforce their culture and tell their mm -hmm. story. So mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a, you know, and obviously that was an attraction for me coming to Orange County as well, in the sense that, you know, you have a very strong creative industry there as well. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excuse me for a moment, Dean, while I update our audience. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and my guest today is new UCI Paul Mirage School of Business Dean, Ian Williamson. He has 20 years of national and international business experience and has spent about half that time down under in Australia and New Zealand. And right now we just finished talking about where he's been at for the last three and a half years in New Zealand. Why don't we back up just a little bit, Dean, where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Well, the accent's probably already shown. I, I'm not originally from Australia. New Zealand. <laughs> I'm originally from the south side of Chicago. That's home for me. And that will always be home for me. My mother and father and many of my family members are still there. So I grew up there, you know, and I think it was a pretty typical south side Chicago childhood experience. Uh, I always was big into sports. That kept me out of trouble for the most part. Probably the best one I was, the one I was probably most gifted at was track and field. So I was a track and field athlete in high school. It was pretty good in that. I was a city champion in, in a particular event. And then I decided what, to continue what was the that. Event? So I was a city champion in the hurdles, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, I was a hurdler in high school. And then when I went to college, I converted over to being a half miler. And so that was something that was great. I got a chance to kind of travel the team. And at, when I went to Miami University of Ohio, and just a good chance to kind of interact and see the country. So, and, and, you know, also just push yourself physically to see what you're capable of doing. Right. Uh, excellent. And when did you start to gravitate to business and management specifically? Yeah, it probably, well, I should say, I, um, I really had no idea what I was going to do. I just kind of thought, well, my parents, fortunately, and my family had always really encouraged education. So they had instilled that that was something I was going to do. And, but I don't know if I had a really good sense as to what I was going to engage in when I got to college. I initially thought I might major in economics because I was fascinated by human behavior. 
But I happened to have a management professor, Dr. Wesley King, when I was studying in my undergraduate, who really was a phenomenal mentor for me. And his class was great. You know, I really sparked some interest of mine. And it was right around the time when it was my junior year, actually. And I was beginning to think about employment, like finding a job. And I was speaking with some friends and some, you know, colleagues around that. And I was really just amazed at how they were making decisions to select jobs and companies. And, you know, I just, it just didn't make any sense to me. I was talking to a friend of mine once and I said, you know, he was promoting the, the you know, working at this particular company. And I asked him, I said, oh, have you worked there before? He says, no. I said, do you know anybody who works there? He says, no. Do you, do you know what they do? He was like, kind of, sort of. I was like, so why do you want to work there? He's like, it just seems like a cool place. And I just thought to myself, <laughs> that's got to be the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. You're going to commit yourself to this organization and these people when it's different part of this country that you've never lived in before. And all you're going to do it on is because it's cool. And that question, that conversation sparked my interest in management and really was one of the reasons I became a, went on to pursue my PhD. And, you know, it really started with a very simple question. How do people get jobs? Uh, because it was one I was struggling with. And I was like, there's got to be an answer to this. And then I began to realize, well, actually, the answer is not so simple. And then later, I got a job. I worked for a grocery chain called Aldi, which is an international grocery chain, very successful one. And I ran quite a few outlets for them across Indiana. And in that role, probably 60% of the job was actually managing my workforce. And the challenges associated with that were quite obvious to me. And I began to think about it from the other side. Uh, how do companies select people? So, you know, I had this experience of trying to find a job and was really confused about how to do that. Then I had this experience of hiring people and seeing them be successful or not successful and then understanding the challenges around that. And so those two questions have pretty much guided my academic career uh, for the last 20 plus years, really thinking about two basic questions. How do people get jobs and how do companies select people? And then it's branched out to say, well, how do the choices that people make about jobs impact their life? How do they impact their community? Why are there some jobs in communities and why are there some jobs that aren't in communities? What type of people should companies get if they're trying to achieve a certain type of strategy? What happens if they change their strategy? How do they adapt those people? What are the constraints that companies face in trying to attract people? So, you know, how, how do the issues that we have in society around education, health, political participation, discrimination, all those things, how do they impact the ability of a company to attract the people it wants? What if you're trying to get people in different settings, say in Indonesia and Australia or New Zealand and America? And so it's really blossomed out, if you like, to other areas, but it always goes back to those two simple things that early in my career, I had personal questions around. I see that you, you know, some of the companies that you consulted with were uh, uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, Lockheed, Nestle, Accenture. Can you talk about maybe a little bit of the consulting work that you did? Well, that's been a really enjoyable aspect of my career in that my research is applied in nature. The types of questions that I focus on are questions that typically have some strategic and in some cases tactical value for firms. And most of the cases when I'm working with organizations, we're kind of focusing in on a few different areas. Uh, how do I develop a talent pipeline that will allow me to execute a particular strategy. And particularly over the last 10 years, a lot of that work has been working with companies where the business models that they've been operating under, the business strategy they've been operating on, has been disrupted in some major way by external events. 
And so previous to COVID, it was largely looking at digital issues and working with organizations that were going through major digital transformation issues. Mm-hmm. It was also cases where companies were dealing with major changes in the competitive landscape. So for example, while I was doing some work with organization in Malaysia, where they were experiencing huge increase in competition from foreign investors coming in and setting up companies. And they were having to really think differently about their price model, their positioning of the market. So it starts with a strategy question, but then it quickly moves over to if we're going to move from being a print media provider to a digital media provider, if we're going to move from a cost-cutting organization to a luxury organization, you know, whatever that position might be, what does that mean for our workforce? And my role in these organizations has been to think about the type of people they would need to bring in, how they hire, how they develop those individuals, how they would go about motivating those individuals to perform at a high level, and then how would they retain them and derive value from their expertise. And I particularly had an interest in doing work in in companies or organizations where the, the product or the service was intangible, so ideas. So professional service organizations, law firms, engineering firms, consulting firms, government agencies, these were things where, you know, you're really building enterprises around people and and what are the ways in which you do that? That's a lot of the work that I've done and it's really been a nice complement to the research that I've done in that particular area as well. Mm. Yeah, it it seems like it's a great background to be a dean of a business school. I would hope so. <laughs> you know, I, I joke. I, I, I joke. I joke with people on saying that you know I spent the last ten years of my life working with all these different organizations who are being disrupted, and I I can think of no domain being more disrupted than higher education. And perhaps this is my opportunity to eat my own cooking, and, and see you know see how well it goes. So that's the challenge. But that's the excitement as well. I, I really do feel like. Our domain of higher education is being changed in permanent ways. I don't think we're going to look the same way 10 years from now as we do today. I'm excited by that. And I think it will create a great opportunity for universities and institutions to really redefine who they are. But, you know, that will be not without some heavy lifting, uh, you know, and it's an interesting conundrum. We, we pride ourselves in higher education on our traditions, our rituals, our history. Yet what we know is that most companies that struggle to deal with major disruptions struggle because of their traditions, their history and and the like. And so how do you hold on to that, yet adapt it and update it to the new environments that we're we're facing, the new needs that societies have? Mm, Interesting. So when did you start gravitating to academia? Quite early. I actually knew I wanted to become an academic when I graduated from my undergraduate career. I had that opportunity to work with uh, my mentor, Dr. King. Uh, He was very, very generous in explaining to me what research was, which is something I never heard of. I didn't know you could be an academic as a career. I didn't know that was a full-time job. I had really no understanding of what that was. And I worked with my first research project. My first paper that I ever was able to publish, I published with him. And I knew when I graduated that this was something I wanted to do. I I decided to work in corporate for a while. I thought it was good from a maturity perspective, you know, for me to kind of get that experience, but also from a financial perspective to allow me to make some money. But after I sort of did that for a while, I I went back and got my PhD and I knew I wanted to be in that area of management because those two questions I discussed earlier were really resonating with me. And I also kind of found that while I was having some success in the corporate environment, I was having a lot of questions around why things were working. And in most companies, there's no business model around why. The business model is typically around how. (laughs) And so, you know, you don't have the time to ask the why questions. Unfortunately, the academic career is is a question around why. And I found that to be, you know, a good fit for me. Mm. 
Good. Very good. Excuse me just one more time, Dean Williamson. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Paul Mirage School of Business Dean Ian Williamson, and he's talking about his business background and going to get his PhD and then I think transitioning into academia, and that's where we are right now. So you got your PhD and then what happened? Well, I started off, I graduated from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, with my PhD in organizational behavior management. Uh, I started off as, as an academic uh, assistant professor at the University of Maryland College Park, so based in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. primarily teaching graduate students. And it was fantastic. I was really, if you like, developing and harnessing my craft as a researcher and doing quite a bit of work looking at issues around human capital and social capital and firms and the impact they had on firm outcome. And then I was teaching my master's students, and I began to appreciate that most of my students were, not most, but 30% or so were from outside, from, from outside the United States. And I just, in my conversations with them, began to appreciate they had a very different perspective on the world, one Perfect. which I did Perfect. not quite understand or, or had not seen before. What, what part of the, you said that 30% were from where? From outside of the United States. Oh, from everywhere. okay. So they're yeah, interna- from, international students. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So from a wide variety of backgrounds. Yeah. And that was eye-opening for me. And, you know, I, you sh- I should tell you, you know, when I started that job, I didn't have a passport. I think I had been to Canada and I think I'd been to Mexico briefly. I just had never given any consideration really to international business opportunities or career opportunities. And, you know, in the course of that discussion with them, I really kind of opened something up for me. And then I had a unique opportunity where I was invited to go uh, teach a course in Poland, of all places. And not Warsaw, Poland, Łódź, Poland, which is a city, the second largest city in Poland that most people in America have never heard of, uh, right in the heart of Poland. And I, I, I accepted, I, I, I didn't really know what to expect, but I was invited to come do it. I thought, why not? I'll give it a chance. I'm really curious. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. I was primarily teaching executives who were running companies, which previously were state-held companies under the Communist Party, which were now being privatized. And, you know, just a fascinating opportunity to understand how business management was being considered in a very different cultural context. Probably the most interesting comment I've ever had in a classroom, we were talking about motivating staff, and uh, we were talking about staff being absent or quitting and just different strategies that managers should take. And one of the, my students, uh, older gentleman, uh, was running a factory in the location. He said, this is just fascinating. I never heard this before. He said, previously under the Communist Party, if someone missed work, we just put him in jail. And I, and I just kind of paused, and I was like, well, did that work? He was like, yeah, we had no absenteeism problems. I was like, well, I guess it's a shame we can't do that anymore. <laughs> you know, and it just really was eye-opening to sort of see how, you know, the, the setting is such a different one. And, you know, I'd never been to a place where, you know, I was so different from everyone else. You know, I literally had kids following me down the street pointing at me because they had never seen a person who looked like me ever before in their life. And I was just as fascinating with them, to be quite frank. But, you know, that educational experience really brought us together. And, and I did that for several years, actually, going back, teaching in that particular program. And I think that just opened me to a perspective, which ultimately led to me considering opportunities outside the United States. Mm -hmm. So from Poland, where did you go? So 
So I uh, decided to consider opportunities permanently overseas, and my wife and I just uh, spun the globe. I applied to a bunch of different places, and it just so happened that I was very fortunate to be selected for a role at the University of Melbourne at Melbourne Business School in Australia. And I had never been to Australia, and I did not know anyone in Australia, but I thought it seemed like a really good institution. I was impressed with the values of the leadership, as best you can understand that. And packed up my family. Uh, at that time, I had twin daughters. I, I have three children now. And we moved over to Australia thinking, well, we'll see where this goes. And that was uh, 10 years we wow. stayed in Australia. It was a really phenomenal opportunity for us. When did you arrive in Australia? We got there in 2006. Okay. And yeah. excuse my ignorance, Sydney is on the west, or no, Sydney is the east coast of Australia. East coast. East coast, yes. And where is so Melbourne? Melbourne? Melbourne is at the bottom southeast corner. So oh, it's about oh. a 10-hour drive to Sydney. Okay. Uh, Melbourne is, uh, you know, Sydney is known for Bondi Beach and the beaches and, and the various things. Melbourne's not that type of city. Melbourne is not as warm. Uh, it, you know, people in Australia complain about Melbourne being cold. Coming from Chicago, I thought Melbourne was balmy. I didn't, I didn't actually understand what they were talking about. But, you know, from their perspective, you don't go to Melbourne for the beaches. But Melbourne has a very strong European history in terms of the migration pattern. So it's known for its ethnic enclaves, its food, its, uh, its arts, its culture. It's a very, very vibrant downtown or traditional downtown type of city. In many respects, it reminded me of Chicago because it's a very big downtown and it was very vibrant with a big river that flowed right through the middle of it. So it reminded me of the Chicago River. Uh Um, And it's a very, very diverse city. So you have a lot of different ethnic groups who settled there over the years. Most recently, a very huge Asian population that settled in Melbourne. So it was was great. We really, really... uh, And I I also... One of the reasons I, I was hoping it would happen, I didn't know for certain, is that Australia has a very different orientation. So it's got a very strong Asian orientation because of its trade and its location. And I hoped it would give me opportunities to do more work in Asia. And, and as it turns out, it did. I ended up doing quite a bit of extensive work across the region, ultimately becoming the Associate Dean for International Relations for our business school. And so that meant quite a bit of travel, specifically across Southeast Asia, but also China. Uh, so it's it's very eye-opening in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Wow. And when you were teaching management in Melbourne? I was teaching primarily MBA programs, uh-huh. uh, management. I actually ran our executive MBA program while I was there. And then later on, I became the Associate Dean for International Relations, which was setting up opportunities to work with governments and companies across Southeast Asia. But I also was the founder of a social impact center while I was there. And that was a very rewarding experience where I had the mandate of thinking about how uh, a business school could play a role in addressing major social issues. And one of the major focuses that we had was looking at how we as a business school could enhance economic opportunities within the Aboriginal community in Australia. And so out of that, we started a program to work with Indigenous entrepreneurs. And that program has been running now for over 10 years. And it's been very, very successful, a national program that works with Indigenous entrepreneurs to support their businesses. And in doing so, support Indigenous employment as well as economic development within those communities. So it was a great opportunity for me to get exposure to yet another culture, which I previously had had no exposure to before coming to Australia. Hmm. Excellent. Well, before we transition to you coming here to Irvine, you were in Australia for about 10 years. On a personal side, 
what did you love? Did you fall in love with Australia? What did you most enjoy seeing or doing? Oh, I, yeah, it was, a, it was a tremendous blessing for our family. I, I think initially, to be honest, it, it wasn't really Australia as much as moving out of the U.S. really forced me to think a lot about what it meant to be American. You know, I was just, if you're in an environment where all the assumptions that you just sort of always had were there and now they're removed, yeah. you realize your, your identity is a choice. You know, like, so what was it about being American that I was choosing to be? Uh, and, and, and that was quite interesting, just to kind of reflect on my experiences. But, you know, the culture there is very open, quite laid back. The diversity is it's very diverse, but in a way that's it's quite different from America in terms of the populations and migration patterns. And so it exposed me to a lot of different cultures that I probably would not have had as easy access to. I became quite involved, not only with the Aboriginal Torres Strait Island or indigenous community there, but quite involved with the Indonesian community there. And ended up doing quite a bit of work in Indonesia. And actually, before moving to New Zealand, moved my family to Indonesia. So we were in Indonesia for a while. Mm-hmm. And really beginning to see that culture, which is just rich and fascinating. Um, you know, Indonesia, 240 million people, fourth largest country on the planet, extraordinarily young. You know, so you just sort of see... Tomorrow is just going to be an amazing period of time for Indonesia. You know, Muslim, uh, largely Muslim, uh, living in that environment and sort of really beginning to understand how that shaped the practices of the country. But, uh, you know, democracy and you know, very open. And, you know, I just think that, that, that sort of exposure to very different types of perspectives, um, this type of open society. And it was really it was great for us. It was really a, a very good experience for my family and uh, and uh Excellent. And to bring it full circle, how did the UCI opportunity come to your attention? It was, you know, I think you never actually know how the journey is going to work. I, I obviously knew of UCI and I knew, I knew of this fantastic university. If you had asked me why it was fantastic or why it had this reputation, I don't think I could have articulated that a year and a half ago. I just knew of it and I had met people who had worked there and was, were, I admired their work, their research, particularly in the business school. And when I was approached about the opportunity, you know, I, I kind of looked at it and there were a few things that stood out. One, the emphasis of the business school about technology was something that I really was impressed with. You know, providing leadership for the digital world was is a tagline and you know, that really captivated me. Two, the business community of Orange County it was very dynamic. It's world leading. It's really doing some phenomenal things in aviation and computer products and, and medical devices and medical services. So, you know, things that are really quite important and things that are where Orange County is leading in those. And so, oh, it'd be great to be in that environment. The diversity of Orange County stood out mm-hmm. to me. Having had the experiences that I had, it was, you know, really exciting to be in a place that, you know, had so many different cultures and languages and backgrounds. But Equally important, the commitment that UCI had to being an environment that supported the diversity. And, and that was something that really stood out. Uh, it was the first time I ever applied for a job, and as part of the application, I had to actually write a statement of diversity uh, as part of my application and my perspectives on it and what I would do around that in my role. And so that really signaled to me a not just a, a, the importance of that, but a willingness to lead in that space. Um, and that's something that I had always done in my career and had initiatives around that. So 
those things all stood out. And then there was a personal reason. Uh, I have family that live in Orange County, not too far from the campus. And after being overseas for that period of time, you know, we thought if we were going to move back to U.S., it'd be good to be close to family, you know, to be able to drive 15 minutes and go hang out with your family members as opposed to plan a trip and a 24-hour flight was something that was quite attractive. Mm-hmm. Very good. Professor, are, are most business schools organized uh, the same way? Is there, is there anything unique about UCI? Well, one of the attractive things of the Paul Mirage School of Business is that we don't actually have departments. And so we have one school, or we have multiple disciplines and areas represented. But, you know, I think that lack of formal structural divides between different areas, say management or accounting and finance, um, it, it does encourage us to think about business problems in a multifaceted way. I think one of the biggest turning points for me in my career, I, I was trained as a management professor, you know, in a very specific discipline with specific skill sets. But then the light bulb moment for me was when I stopped being a management professor and I started being a business professor because my interactions with companies made me appreciate that there are no management problems. There are no finance problems. There are no accounting problems. They're, they're business problems. And the, the practitioners are having to think about holistic issues and then draw upon specific disciplines. And, and I think I can expand that even to think about, you know, there aren't really business problems as much as there are perhaps broader social issues that companies need to provide solutions for. Mm-hmm. And so if you frame things in that way, it allows you to be, I think, a lot more innovative and creative in how you address those issues. So I believe that that's an advantage of our business school in that we're a little bit more open, I think, to those interdisciplinary perspectives towards addressing problems. Interesting. It reminds me that the role of the business professional is our organization, we have to be profitable. If we're not profitable, we don't exist as an organization or it's going to be very short term. Yeah, I, when I first started off in my career, you know, obviously as a business professor, you focus a lot on how do you create processes, practices that allow organizations to be successful. And if you're focusing on for-profit firms, that's financially successful. I, I had an interesting experience. I was teaching a group of executives, and as part of this course, I took them to South Africa. And so we were in South Africa for two weeks, and the, the class was built around understanding what would you need to do to set up a business operation in South Africa. And there's a lot of reasons why you would want to do that. It's a fantastic country, great growth potential, a whole host of reasons. And we were spending time talking to executives in different companies around how they had set up their enterprises. And at some point in the conversations, we, we were part, one of the executives sort of stopped us and said, you know, you're asking us the wrong question. And I was really interested. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, we can answer the questions you're asking us, but these aren't the important questions to ask us in the setting. And I said, okay, well, you know, what was the first decision you had to make about your workforce when you set up operations? And I was expecting something about, like, how much to pay them, how to hire, and things like that. And they said, no, we had to come up with an HIV AIDS policy. Because at that time, roughly 20% of the population in South Africa was infected with HIV AIDS. Mm. And in that moment, in that conversation, it really dawned on me, you know, we can get so obsessed with what we can do as a company or what we're going to do as a company, who our competitors are. But every organization is embedded in that community. And ultimately, you create value for that community when you address and solve the major problems in that community. And if you're trying to convince a community that what you do is useful, that's a hard job. 
you much rather talk to the community and find out what they need. And then as an entrepreneur, as the business person, determine what is it that you can do to solve that. Mm. And, and that's the constraint. And so it really, you know, just reminded me some very fundamental principles about how organizations create value and why companies fail. Ultimately, most companies fail not because of mismanagement, because what they're doing, society just doesn't need mm-hmm. <laughs> or doesn't need at that scale anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we think about organizations having to evolve or pivot or move, that's primarily because the needs of the society have changed. And I think we're seeing that right now very clearly with everything that's been going on recently. You have COVID, you have Black Lives Matter, you have the Me Too movement, you have concerns around sustainability from an environmental perspective. You have a whole host of preferences, you know, the, the rise of the digital world in a way we never envisioned. All of this has changed what society has, has needs for now. And as a result, companies will have to really think hard about, well, what does value look like in that environment? And, that, and that'll be exciting for us as a business school to, to study, to guide you know, those leaders around. But also, it's a journey we'll have to go on as well. Yes. You know, uh, as you were describing that, I was like, wow, this is directly applicable to the Paul Mirage School. Yeah, you, definitely it is. You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest is UCI Paul Mirage School of Business Dean, Ian Williamson. He just started as business school dean on January 1st, 2021, and is currently performing his duties via Zoom from New Zealand, where he is waiting for international COVID travel restrictions to be lifted. Until then, Zoom is working whether he is next door or halfway around the world. Next up in the interview, his first-year goals at the Paul Mirage School of Business. Can you articulate your goals for your first year at UCI? Well, I think the number one goal right now is to ensure we have an environment where we can provide a world-class education and also ensure that our staff and our students are healthy and safe, Uh, to be quite frank. That is the number one goal. It doesn't really matter how smart you are if you don't have the health that allows you to act upon that insight. And so, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to take that for granted. We are moving in a way where we want to ensure that we can have face-to-face interactions of some sort. But, you know, we have to do that in a manner that's going to be health and sound, and that's complex, and as every community around the world has found out. So that's number one. But, you know, once we have that in place and as we maintain that as our standard, I would really love to see us continue down the path of being leaders for the digital world. Uh, to be quite honest. And that's incorporating not just the work we've been doing around our uh, you know, commercial models and working with companies to understand how they commercialize certain types of technology, but it's also stepping out to think more holistically about this. Uh, you know, we know that the digital economy has generated tremendous outcomes from an economic perspective for communities around the world, particularly California. But we also know that as we've had those outcomes, you know, it's not been even. So you have huge issues around digital divide, you know, underrepresentation of certain groups in the digital workforce, uh, a lack of new creation of businesses by certain groups in the digital workforce, you know, lack of senior leadership in those companies, very different perspectives where, you know, the digital services are not necessarily being evenly or equally provided or appropriate for all communities. These are huge opportunities for us. They represent opportunities for growth for the sector. But a failure to address that will also be major challenges for the viability of the economy. 
So I, I would like to see us kind of have that more holistic perspective around technology, which is both incorporating that in commercial perspective, but also thinking about these broader social implications of digital, the digital economy and how we can provide leadership in that. I think that's a great opportunity for us to lead. Excellent. And UCI seems to be strong in the area of centers for excellence. Uh, mm. Have you had a chance to look at those? You know, any observations about that? We have some fantastic ones in the business school that are really provided some great leadership for us. We have a center for digital transformation, which has been providing great services to business community for quite a number of years around how organizations are managing that, that transition, I guess, from an analog to a digital world. We have a Bill Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which has really helped our students with ideas for new ventures to get started. And we every year have new ventures that come out of that. We have a fantastic center for investment and wealth management, which was a great program to provide financial training and financial literacy for children in the Orange County area. We have a center for healthcare management and policy as well that's doing some great work in that particular space. And so I think those are those are great catalysts for us. They are great interfaces between the business school, its academic mission, and its external outreach mission, which is to ensure that what we're doing actually has an impact on practice. So I would love to see those areas continue to expand. I actually think there's an opportunity for us to bridge the various different activities to sort of think about broader, bigger picture issues. And then, of course, we have some great university-wide centers that we will get involved in. Excellent. For our students out there, Professor, can you name any point in your career you had adversity that you you had to overcome can you can you recall <laughs> anything about that you know oftentimes i think students think oh well, you know professors you know it's been a smooth sail how has it been for you well i would say that most of the time the water is choppy actually <laughs> <laughs> The smooth selling days are probably the minority ones. You know, I, I, I would say, you know, I don't think my journey was too special in the sense that I think, you know, you, you, you go through your particular journey with all types of setbacks. And, and for those students, particularly those undergraduate students, I'll share, I remember very vividly, I was in my second or third year of my undergraduate experience. And at that time, I was still an economics major. And I took a, but I was now moving into my higher level econ classes. I was sort of beyond the entry level econ classes. And so the math was starting to become a little bit different than the math that I'd ever seen before. And I remember taking an initial test early in the term and I got like a 50% on the test. And I, I studied hard for this test, right? And, and I remember looking and going, you gotta be kidding me. Like that was the best <laughs> I had. <laughs> I gave it my all, I got 50%. Yeah. And I was just so discouraged. I decided I was gonna drop out of the business school. I just like, this is obviously not for me. And, you know, I should share, I was the only black student in most of these classes. And I didn't have any black professors. And I really didn't have anybody who was a role model for me. So to tell me that, you know, okay, it's not so bad. But there was one gentleman who was an administrator in the business school, it was a black gentleman, Mr. Madison. And I went to Mr. Madison's office out, out of almost like a courtesy to tell him, thank you for your support, but I will no longer be in the business school. I'm dropping out. <laughs> And I went to his office to tell him, and he set me down, he's, and he looked at me like a father almost and was like, yeah, you're not doing that. You're definitely staying in the business school. And the, he, the way he said it, it immediately took that option off the table for me. So the conversation quickly moved to, so now that you're going to stay in the business school, what are you going to do? And, you know, it's simple conversations like that, because I was dead serious. I had done all the paperwork. I was about to just, it was over. It was a wrap. 
he forced me to think about, well, what do you like? What are you good at? And it just so happened at that time I was taking a management class. And he says, well, you know, you said you're interested in human behavior. Management is human behavior as well. And, you know, at the time, you know, looking back, that was a pretty simple observation to make. But, you know, you're, you're young. You don't really know what's going on. You're, the world is, you know, you're, you're kind of obsessed with a lot of small things. And that ability to have a perspective from someone who was wise, who had the experience, was critical. And, and that, that, that conversation is a conversation I've had multiple times in my career with multiple people who took the time to kind of provide me with perspective, who took my interest at heart. So I guess that, you know, surround yourself with people who will give you that because it's going to be difficult for you as you go through those experiences that we all go through to maintain that perspective that is critical for you so to keep going forward. Excellent. On a lighter side, Professor, in your spare time when you have any, what do you like to do? Well, I mentioned earlier I have three children. And so, you know, anytime I can spend with them and my wife is always a good time. The things I would say I do for myself, I probably have two or three different passions. You know, I ran track in college, but if you had to ask, my favorite sport was always basketball. And so I still play a lot of basketball as much as I possibly can. I tell people I'm in the eternal pursuit of the perfect jump shot. And so that anytime <laughs> I get a chance to go out and do that, I'm going to do it, you know, no matter how bad it might be. And luckily, you know, my children have a liking of basketball as well. And so I can go out and enjoy that with them. Yeah. I, I like music. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not great at it, but I certainly enjoy playing the piano and the bass guitar. And, and I'll do that to kind of pass some time. And I've always been involved in my local church, wherever I've been. And, and that's been a great way for me to connect with people in community and provide great service. And so those, those are the sort of the three things. If I have some time, I'm going to go do them. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Dean, thank you so much for spending the time with us. We really appreciate getting to know you a little bit better and hearing all about the things that you've done in your career leading up to this point of coming to UCI and the Palmerage School of Business. We welcome you with open arms and can't wait till you get here. We really appreciate it, Kevin, and uh, thank you for taking the time. And yeah, just I'm very excited to be joining the Ant Eater community, and I'm looking forward to you know how I can contribute to the wonderful things that we're doing there. A great thought. Thank you again to new leader of UCI's Paul Mirage School of Business, Dean Ian Williamson, for making time from his busy schedule to share his journey, what he has learned along the way, and his goals for the future. Dean Williamson's wealth of international business experience should go a long way to lead UCI in these disruptive digital times. And we wish him Godspeed in his travels from Wellington, New Zealand, to the beautiful shores of Orange County. Welcome to Dean Ian Williamson. And thank you to Fred Kaplan for providing all my show theme music from his great blues combo CD, Signifying. Check it out. And coming up next at the top of the hour, Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, the show that examines common business problems with recognized business experts. Stay tuned. This is UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Don't forget you can message me anytime at kboss at KUCI.org. And this show and all my past shows can be accessed 24-7 at my podcast website, www.bostonmeyer.com. You are listening to The Great One, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, 
encouraging you to get your vaccine as soon as you can. Keep wearing double masks whenever possible and keep your physical distance. We are all in this together, so don't let down your guard just yet. Zot, 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 keep it up. Have a productive good evening. Enjoy your time. Be kind to one another. And we will see you next week. So long, everybody. Happy trails.